Well, good evening. Welcome back to our series of studies through the book of Esther. Tonight, we're going to be continuing through chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 18. But before we get started, I just want to do a quick review of what we studied last time. Um, As Esther was incorporated into the, the king's harem with all of the other beautiful young virgins who had been collected from throughout the empire, what we saw is that she pleased Hegai, the king's eunuch, and she won his favor. And we, we developed how this was the winning combination of the Lord working in Esther's life and circumstances and a combination of that and her cooperating with all that he's doing. We also looked a little bit deeper into the the father-daughter relationship that Mordecai and Esther shared. Now, it was clearly a blessing to each of them, and it's also one of the catalysts that the Lord used to bring about his plan of saving his people from annihilation. And then finally, we looked at the the degrading process of selection that each of these young girls were forced through. And the outcome for them all, except the one girl that the king would choose as his queen. So in tonight's study of verses 15 through 18, we'll see that it's now Esther's turn with the king and that he will favor her above all the young girls, all of the young virgins that have been brought before him. And he, of course, takes her as his queen. So why don't we read together Esther chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. It says, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. All right, let's begin with verse 15. Now, each of the new girls in the king's harem, they've now gone through the year-long process of beautification. And they were now, each one of them, systematically going into the king in turn, night by night. And then where, our, where the story picks up, it's now Esther's turn 
with the king. And we're reminded here briefly, we are reminded of who Esther is in relationship to Mordecai, even though, and keep in mind, because this is an important part of of the story, even though this identity is still a secret to Haggai, to the king, and to all of the officials in Susa. And then at this point, the text discloses a little bit more about Esther's character. We get to learn a little bit more about Esther's character. Now, we don't know, we're not told, it's not explicit in the text, if Esther was you know, really striving to become queen, to be chosen as, king, uh, as queen. We don't know if that was her desire or not. But what's crystal clear is that this was definitely the Lord's plan for her. Esther exhibited what, what I would call true biblical submission to the Lord's authority in her life. You see, for Esther, uh, and let me, let me pause here just for a quick second and say this, this principle, this is true for all of us. Okay, For Esther, the Lord expressed his authority in her life. He expressed his authority through those that he placed in authority in her life. Mordecai, right? She was obedient and submissive to Mordecai. And now, Haggai, for the past year, Haggai. And what we see here is true and healthy submission to that authority. Now, I am convinced that Esther's trust, which, which is, is displayed in her submission to Haggai, I'm convinced that that trust was not primarily in Haggai himself, but ultimately in the Lord. In other words, I don't think that she had come to a conclusion or that she had decided to trust Haggai and ask for nothing but what he advised And I'm saying this primarily because she knew him to be a trustworthy man. Now, maybe he was. Maybe he was a trustworthy man. And maybe she felt this way about him. I mean, after all, he knew, Haggai knew better than anybody, better than any of the girls in the harem, what would please the king. He knew how to please the king. And we also know that he favored Esther above all of the other girls in the harem. But I'm convinced that her trust was primarily in the Lord. I believe that she knew that the Lord had placed her where she was and that she fully and completely trusted in him, in the Lord. Here's what leads me to this conclusion. This is the type of man that Mordecai was, and he had raised her. He had raised her as his own daughter. Let me, just real quickly here, let me fast forward you to chapter 4. I want to read verses 13 and 14. It says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Now this is Mordecai speaking. He said, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance 
will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And when I read this, to me, these are the words of a man who knows and trusts the Lord. Even in the face of adversity, even in the face of real, actual danger. And I'm confident that he had, that Mordecai had instilled um, in Esther this same trust, this same faith in the Lord. Now, at this point in time, she didn't know the whole story. She didn't know the beginning to the end the way we do. She didn't know exactly where the Lord was taking her or what he was doing with her. But I do believe that she trusted in the Lord. And I know that everybody here knows this, but just by way of reminder, human beings, human holders of authority can and often do err in their authority, in their expression of authority. And they even abuse their authority. But the point we need to always keep in mind is that the giver of that authority, the Lord himself, is always faithful. He is always just. And he is always trustworthy. This is a lesson that we should all really take to heart. Now, on a practical level, with what's going on here with with Esther, um, this is a circumstance where um, I would say it's one of those circumstances where less is more. You see, oftentimes uh, a, a person can say far more by keeping silent than by expending many, many words to, t- to, to make a point, okay? A quiet and submissive heart wins favor. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What I mean by all this is that Esther was given, at this point in time, she was given this one opportunity to exercise independence. Remember in our last study, I pointed out how, how for this year of, of this, this process of beautification, everything was dictated to all of the girls, including Esther, day by day, everything that she did every day, it was dictated to her. She didn't have any choice. She didn't, there was no room to exercise any type of, of independence or independent thought. But now she's given this. Whatever she wanted to take in to the king with her would have been given. She would have been given whatever she desired to take with her when she went into the king. But she doesn't do that. Instead, what does she do? She quietly, submissively takes only what Haggai advises to her. And then, I love this, we see the result immediately in the, in the passage. She was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So that's the result of Esther's character. 
It's the result of her disposition. It's the result of her submission to authority. Winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. See, it wasn't, it wasn't her physical beauty that was winning her favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She was beautiful. Remember, she was beautiful. But this is not what was winning her favor. It wasn't her, her physical, her external beauty. It was her inner beauty. And ultimately, isn't the goal for us all to find favor in the eyes of God? Let me reread 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, to remind us of this. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Amen. All right, let's move on to verses 16 and 17. It says, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Okay, now, verse 16, it's the the time clue that I mentioned back in our study of verse 1 of this chapter. So, it's been four years since Queen Vashti was dethroned. And we are able to deduce this, safely deduce this, by looking at chapter 1, verse 3, and this verse, chapter 2, verse 16, together. Okay, the events of chapter 1 took place in, we know this for sure, took place in the third year of the king's reign. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast, etc., etc. So we know for sure that was the third year of his reign. Now here in chapter 2, verse 16, this text states that Esther was presented to the king in the seventh year, right? So, Four years. This is four years after the events of chapter 1. That's clear. The interesting thing here is that the text doesn't, it doesn't comment on that fact in any way. It just simply, it, 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 it clearly implies this. Only that it's been four years since the king dethroned Vashti. And it's just, it just kind of hangs out there. And interestingly, most commentators simply ignore this time span, and they make no comment on it. Personally, that drives me crazy when it comes to commentators. You know, if I'm reading a, a commentary, <laughs> I'm reading a commentary. I want a comment on the text, and they just skip over the, 
drives me crazy, but that's just a personal thing. So most commentators just simply ignore this. I did find a couple who speculated. They suggested that there were natural reasons, that is, like historical events um, as to why there was this four-year gap. But I wasn't able to find any comment on why the Lord chose to include this in the text. I mean, he clearly does, but why? I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's an automatic question that, that I ask when I read the text. Text. Now, I get why a lot of commentators skip over this, because they don't want to presume on the Lord. You know, if something isn't explicit in the text, they want to be careful. And so do I. I don't want to presume on the Lord's intention where it isn't specified. Okay. But in, in reading this over and over again, it did lead me to a particular train of thought. And I wanted to share that. And that train of thought is this. Nothing is random with the Lord. The Lord doesn't do things just as filler. Nothing is random with the Lord, including this span of time, this four-year span of time. I mean, why didn't everything happen a year earlier or a year later? Why not three years? Why not five years? Why not a year? Why four years? And these, these are the, the, the types of questions that I think that we often ask in the circumstances of our own lives. Things like, you know, I've been, I've been praying for something for so long. Why is the Lord taking so long to answer this prayer? Why isn't he answering this, this prayer more quickly? Or, you know, possibly for a young person who desires, and I mean this in a very, in a, in a very godly, biblical way, for a young person who desires to be married, Why hasn't he brought me a husband or a wife yet? Why is it taking so long? For for someone who is is suffering from some type of an an ailment, why hasn't he healed me yet? Etc., etc., these types of things, right? Well, we are meant to always remember. And I think that maybe, and I'm just saying maybe, this is just a possibility, I think maybe the Lord's reason for including the specifics of this four-year time time span is to remind us that the Lord has a purpose, he has a plan, and he has a time frame for everything in the lives of his people. Everything. Why was it four years? because the Lord wanted it to be four years. He didn't want it to take place in three years. He didn't want it to take place in five years. The Lord intended it to take place in four years. In our lives, we don't always know or understand or agree with his time frame. Our part in the equation is to patiently wait on the Lord's timing and always trust in him. All right, so back to our passage. So it's been four years. Now, we don't know exactly where Esther was in the, in the lineup of girls spending the night 
with the king. You know, we got all these girls, and night by night, they're, they're going into the king. We don't know exactly where Esther was in this lineup. In verses 12 through 14, makes it makes it pretty clear that there were at least some, some number of them who went into the king before Esther. Now, you know, again, I'm, I'm speculating here. Perhaps because Haggai favored Esther, maybe he sent her to the king at the time that he discerned would be the most opportune time for Esther to go into the king, to be selected as queen. It's a possibility. Again, I'm confident that the Lord, by whatever means he chose, sovereignly directed Esther's path to the king. Just like, why was it four years? Because the Lord intended it to be four years. Wherever Esther was in the lineup, she was right where the Lord wanted her to be. She went into the king on the exact night the Lord intended her to go in to the king, all for the purpose of serving his purpose. So Esther spent the night with the king as all of these young girls who went before her had. But the outcome for Esther was very, very different than all the rest of the girls. Where the others were, as we learned last time, where the others were sent to the king's second harem the morning after. Didn't happen with Esther. Esther was crowned queen of Persia. She's the new queen. And the text tells us that the king loved Esther more than all the women. Now, some commentators that I read suggest that King Ahasuerus didn't actually love Esther. They suggest that he was, you know, maybe it was just a matter of being overwhelmed by her, by her physical beauty and, and being enamored with her more than he was with the others. I just, I don't see this in the text. Or in the king's Uh, in the king's actions toward Esther for the remainder of the story. And that will continue to to develop as we we go through the book. Um, The original word used here, uh, the Hebrew word used here to describe the king's love for Esther, it's the same Hebrew word that was used to describe the love that Jacob had for Rachel. And later on, that, that Jacob or Israel had for his son, Joseph. In both of those cases, that was, that, was, that was real love. Now, I'm sure that the king was very attracted to Esther physically. She was beautiful. He was attracted to her more than any of the other girls that he was with. But I'm convinced here that there was more than just the king's characteristic appetite for physical beauty at work here. Takes us back to our our recurring theme of God working behind 
the scenes. Now, King Ahasuerus, we spent a lot of time in chapter 1 developing the character of King Ahasuerus. He was not characterized as a man who was even, really, who was even able to truly love someone other than himself, right? But we know that many things that seem impossible to us are entirely possible with God. Remember the words, uh, Jesus' words, when he spoke to the rich young ruler? He said, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I believe that the Lord sovereignly moved on the king's heart. Verse 17 tells us that the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Now we know he clearly had a weakness when it came to his desire for women. There's no actual numbers mentioned about this, but the, 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 the implication is that he had more concubines than he could keep track of. He had a lot of concubines, so many that he couldn't have even re- remembered each one by, by name or by face. Yet, out of them all, whatever that number is, out of them all, his heart's attention, his heart's affection was attached in a different way, in a special way, to Esther. And, like I said before, as we will see in future chapters as we develop these, this attachment lasts and possibly even grows. Now, verse verse 17 also says that Esther won grace and favor in the king's sight more than all the other virgins. So even among the most beautiful girls from throughout the empire. Now remember, when they, when they went out to collect these girls, that was the criteria. They got to be beautiful, the most beautiful. Then they went through an entire year of beautification. Okay, so these girls coming before the king were the most beautiful of the most beautiful. But in the king's heart, Esther rose to the top. And all of this from a man who is, and I don't think that I'm exaggerating here, but all this from a man who is so narcissistic, so focused on himself that it seems really impossible for him to actually love someone else. Well, the Lord wanted Esther to be queen in order to fulfill his purpose, to intercede for God's people, to be the instrument through which God saved his people from annihilation. I am 
100% confident that the feelings the king had for Esther were influenced by the Lord. They were influenced by the Lord to serve his purpose, the Lord's purpose, even though the king clearly did not know or serve the Lord. Verse 18 says, Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So after crowning Esther, queen of Persia, well, what what does the king do? He does what he does best. He threw a feast. (laughs) He gave a party, (laughs) right? Now, We're not given the details of this feast as we were in chapter 1. And if you remember, we went through all the details. We we studied and developed what these feasts, these parties of the king looked like. So we're not given all of those details here. But it was most likely, in all likelihood, it was equal to or greater than his other feasts in its extravagance. We're told that he summoned his officials and servants, as usual. But there was one thing about this feast that was very, very different. Now, the feasts, and there were two of them in chapter 1, the feasts described in chapter 1 had a particular central theme to them. Do you remember what that theme was? The king himself. He was the theme of those feasts. We saw back then that that Queen Vashti, she was was entirely left out of of those feasts, right? She wasn't there. Now, she had a feast of her own, but it was entirely, completely and entirely separate from the king's. She, Vashti, and all of her attendants were not in any way included in the king's celebration. That is, of course, up until he called on her to come to his party to be displayed in front of all of his attendants. But this feast is very, very different. It's not about the king. It's not even called the king's feast. The focus of this feast was Esther. And like I said, it was, it was, the text is explicit. It was called Esther's feast. Now, back in our study of verse 2, I pointed out, I said that it was the responsibility of the young men who attend the king. It was their responsibility to make the king happy and to make sure that the king remained happy. Well, what we're seeing here in verse 18 is that the king is happy. He's happy. In fact, he was so happy here that he wanted to extend the blessing beyond just the attendance of the party. Like I said, We learned back in in chapter 1, 
those who were invited to his parties, they were blessed. Okay, they were given the best of the best. But here we see he wants to extend that even beyond the borders of of the palace, of the party. His uncharacteristic joy over finding a new queen led him to very significant generosity to the common people throughout the empire. The first blessing that we see that he bestows upon all of his empire, all of the commoners, was a remission of taxes. Now, we're not given details of this remission. In other words, we don't know how how much did this remission equate to? How much tax did he actually forgive? Was it a, a month's worth of tax? A year's worth of tax? We don't know for sure. Now, one, I think it's safe to presume, on, on one end of the spectrum, it's safe to presume that this was not a permanent remission of taxes. Okay, that would be one extreme. But on the other end, I, I, I don't think it was a small remission. I think this was a big deal. I'm thinking something like a year's worth of taxes being forgiven. Whatever the exact amount was, it was certainly a blessing to the recipients. I mean, imagine, just for a moment, and this is going to take quite an imagination on our part, but imagine receiving a check from our government for all of the taxes that you paid over the past year. All of the taxes. Income tax, property tax, sales tax, tax on tax, all the taxes. Imagine that. Would you be blessed by that? <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I know. It takes, a, takes a, quite an imagination there. I just wanted to make the point. Okay. So the second blessing that the king bestows is that he gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, the Hebrew, the original word, the, the, the original Hebrew word um, that's translated here to generosity, it's a Hebrew word, yad. And it's the same word that you, that's used in chapter 1, verse 7, that's translated to bounty. Let me reread that verse for you. And this, is, this was at one of his parties. It says, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. It's the same word here. Now that Hebrew word, yad, it literally means hand. So in in, in, um, chapter 1, verse 7, it's the royal wine was lavished according to the the hand of, of the king. This is symbolic of the king's abundance. Now, in that context, it meant that there was literally no end to the flow of wine. The point being was that the king's guests could literally drink as much wine as they wanted with no fear, no possibility of running out. Now, 
I don't think that chapter 2, verse 18, means that there was a never-ending flow of gifts from the king to every person throughout the empire. But what it does mean is that the gifts that were given to the people throughout the provinces in Persia were extremely generous. They were given with the, 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 the hand of the king's generosity. He would have made sure that each gift would accurately reflect the abundance of his wealth. And I think his character was probably mixed in with this. He was happy. He was joyful. He's giving out gifts. But at the same time, I would imagine that he did want to make sure that these gifts reflected just how wonderful he was, just how rich he was. Whatever the specifics of the remission of taxes, whatever the specifics of the royal gifts, you can be sure that all the inhabitants of Persia were pleased. They were blessed. They were happy. And you can be sure that they loved their new queen because they knew that it was because of the new queen that the king was doing all this, forgiving their taxes, giving the gifts, all of that. So we see the Lord at work here in the life circumstances of Mordecai, in the life circumstances of Esther, and even in the life circumstances of King Ahasuerus, right? I mean, he gave, the Lord gave, gave Esther favor with Haggai. He divinely guides Esther to the king. And he, he not only gives Esther favor in the king's eyes, but the Lord sovereignly moved on the king's heart so that this man, a man not characterized as one who was even able to truly love someone, someone else other than himself, this man loved Esther more than anyone. And he expressed that love through uncharacteristic generosity. Well, God works in our lives similarly to how he worked in Mordecai's life, Esther's life, and in the king's life. Many times behind the scenes. Often in ways that that we don't, that we don't see, that, that we don't know, that we don't even understand. But it's always, when the Lord works in our lives, it's always to achieve his goal, and it's always to achieve his plan for our lives. It's always according to his will, and it's always for his glory. What we need to do We need to learn from Esther's response to the Lord working behind the scenes in her life. What did she do? First, she trusted. She trusted in the Lord. 
We need to trust in the Lord, not in the circumstances of our lives, not in necessarily the people who are involved, but we need to trust in the Lord in everything. We need to embrace, we need to embrace our circumstances, the circumstances of our lives, the circumstances the Lord places us in. If it's not what you would have chosen, I mean, has the Lord ever put you in a set of circumstances that you would not have chosen for yourself? Uh, Of course. If it's not what you would have chosen, well, then ask the Lord to change your heart attitude toward the circumstances, not necessarily the circumstances themselves. And then finally, we need to cooperate. We need to cooperate with the Lord in our circumstances. Don't fight against them. Don't fight against him. Don't just endure the circumstances with a, you know, like a a grin and bear it type of attitude, but fully cooperate with the Lord in whatever he chooses to take you through. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for always working in our lives. Thank you for working in our lives, Father, even at times and in ways that we might not see you. We might not feel that you are there, that you are at work, but we know you are. Father, I pray that you will help us all to trust you, help us all to embrace the circumstances you place us in, you take us through, and help us, Father, to cooperate with your will in every circumstance of our lives. Amen.